0: They were just showing you a couple of clips of some of these, you know, we handed out these journals to a few people in advance just to kind of give a sense of what that could look like. Can we put those back up really fast? Maybe? No? Yes? So uh, some people are just going to write, you know, maybe underline, that sort of thing. But there's other people that are more artistic. uh, And so you got a little bit of room. What's, show the next one too. There's a third one I think. Yeah. So it doesn't really matter how you do it, we just wanna be dynamically responding to God's word together, and the, the point there, as Mitch said, with the, uh, with the Instagram, illumination.inc, is that we'll be able to sort of share these things together, so you'll be able to see other people sort of processing through. As we begin this study, uh, in the series of John, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to John 1. I also noticed that some of our, ush, our ushing crew, some of the ushers, have copies of those journals. If you didn't get one when you came in, grab their attention and they'll, uh, they'll bring you one. We're in John 1, verses 1 through 3, as we sort of kick off this study, and I tell you, the timing is exactly right. So if you're sitting here this morning, you're thinking, well, why a, why a study in the Gospel of John? We're going to be in this for about a year. Why now? What's the relevance? Well, we're coming out of a series called On Mission Together. We've been talking about our mission statement as a church, like our, our purpose together, and that mission statement is that empowered by the Holy Spirit, E.B. Free Fullerton would be a loving community, united in sacrifice, and living like Christ for the glory. Of God. And so we spent several weeks in the last six talking essentially about how we live like Jesus both in love and sacrifice, empowered by the spirit of God for the glory of God. But the best way for us to live like Jesus, though, is going to be to look at him. We can speculate and we can sort of throw out all our own ideas, but we want to look at him. I've mentioned before that there was a period of time when I was young that I wanted to to have the glorious ponytail of Steven Seagal, right? We've talked about this. Uh, That seems unlikely to you now based on the haircut I'm currently rocking, but uh, at the time, I wanted to have, and so I spent a lot of time looking at Stephen Seagal, in order that I might replicate uh, that glorious hairdo, and it it never really worked out for me, I'll be honest with you. You see the pictures of me when I was a kid, and it wasn't awesome. But the Gospels, both Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which we find at the beginning of the New Testament, are the perfect place for us to dive in if our goal is to live like Christ. If that's what we're trying to do, well, then we have to ask the question: What was the Lord Jesus like? How did He live? When we talk about discipleship, discipleship is essentially removing any obstacles that make it uh, harder for us to see Christ clearly in order to worship Him and so that we can study Him in order to live the way He did. Well, we do that through the Gospels, and we could have picked any of them, but we chose the Gospel of John uh, in some part because it's my favorite, and I get to pick. So there's that. But all Um, Also because there's something really unique in the Gospel of John in that it was written later than the other three. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, which are called the synoptic Gospels, those were written earlier, and then uh, depending on who you read, some people will say 20 to maybe 50 years later, John writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he writes his Gospel. And when he's writing, what he's doing in some ways, because he, he knows the earlier Gospels, He's both including answers uh, or or he's filling in some gaps, places where he feels like in the other gospels, uh, he doesn't need to say the same stuff again. There are certain things that have been covered really well but there are certain things he wants to emphasize and certain things that he wants to bring out for us that writing at a later date like he does, he has the ability to point out really well. We'll see that right here in these first verses. Not only that, But in the time between the first Gospels were written and when John writes the Gospel of John, he's been involved in evangelistic ministry. So he's been traveling and teaching and discipling people, and in the midst of that evangelistic ministry, he's been confronted with all kinds of questions, the same kinds of questions that many of you in the room might have. Was this, who who is this Jesus? What was he like? Was he really God? Did these miracles really happen? What did people think when this occurred? And all throughout the Gospel of John, we're gonna see little asides. That's something for you to sort of watch for as we're studying. We're gonna see these places where John is writing as an eyewitness. He's not just writing things from sort of a theoretical viewpoint, but he's saying this is what we thought when Jesus said that. This is what we observed in the moment. This is what we heard and saw as people who were actually there in the moment. So John is helpful in that he's answering commonly held questions. He's also speaking at a later date and able to kind of speak to some of the questions of the day, which helpfully are many of the same questions we have today. There are several major themes that come through. So even as you're sort of beginning your journal, there are some things you want to be watching for throughout the pages. In the first chapter of John... He's basically giving an overarching, almost like a preamble, it's an overarching, very deep theological statement in which he's going to present some themes that we will see occur again and again throughout the duration of the book. So themes like the deity of God, we're going to see that this morning, the deity of Christ. Some of the other gospel writers wrote about the humanity of Christ, the incarnation, John is gonna emphasize again and again that this wasn't just a good man or a great rabbi or a great sort of human teacher, but that he was God in the flesh. So the deity of Christ is gonna be a recurring theme. Belief is gonna be a recurring theme. We see belief talked about almost 100 times in the book of John. Again and again he's gonna say belief is what we're looking for, faith in Christ. That's a recurring theme. A recurring theme we wanna look for is the theme of love. John referred to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. He saw his relationship with Jesus as being an affectionate one and an intimate one, and so love is a pervasive theme in this book. Light is a pervasive theme in this book. We'll hear him talk about light again and again, light coming into the darkness. We're also going to see him talk about misunderstanding. There's an overarching theme in the Gospel of John that as Jesus spoke and as Jesus taught and as he did miracles, that many times he declared things very plainly, and yet the crowd didn't get what they were hearing. They didn't understand, so we'll see this overarching sort of recurring theme of the fact that there is a misunderstanding oftentimes about what Jesus is saying and doing, which is relevant because, again, in the day and age in which we live, there are a lot of people who have misunderstood the fundamental nature of who Christ is. And so as we study it, we're going to work our way through verse by verse. I encourage you to take some notes, not just the, the, my notes, but to, but to take your own notes, to be studying this during the week. Let's look here at these first three verses. I just want to take the first three because he begins the book with fireworks, right? He begins the, work, uh, the, the, the writing here with something explosive. He says this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. There's a couple significant things I want you to note right out of the bat. He starts... Within the beginning, which might not be immediately familiar to you, although I guess it, it probably would be. He's making a very clear and pointed reference to the beginning of the scriptures, to the account in Genesis, where it says in Genesis one in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Any decent Hebrew person at the time in which the gospel of John was written would have associated the creative act of God in Genesis 1, the very beginning of life, would have associated that with the powerful word of God that God didn't sort of stir up the dirt and the water and all of these things and sort of craft and earth, but instead he speaks these things into existence. The word of God is associated with power. It's associated with action. Uh, The word here when he says in the beginning was the word, he's referring to Jesus as the incarnate active logo, so the active word of God, the word, speech, action of God. And he's associating it with creation on purpose. He's saying here, the beginning in John 1, I want you to see the beginning in Genesis 1, and I want you to understand these two things together. That when God speaks, there is light. When God speaks, he separates the firmament, right? When God speaks, here are trees and here are plants. The speech of God has power. And God is the clearest articulation or the clearest form. Jesus is the clearest articulation and clearest form of God's speech that you and I will ever know. It says in Hebrews 1, you might remember from our study there, Hebrews 1.1 1, 1 says, In the past, God has spoke to us through all different kinds of things, various and sundry means, right? But now, the writer of the Hebrews says, now he has spoken to us through his Son, and the implication of Hebrews 1.1 is that, yes, God has spoken through, you know, he's spoken through carving on tablets, he's spoken through burning bushes, he's spoken through talking donkeys, he's spoken through prophets, but now, the greatest thing God has ever said and will ever say, he has articulated in a person, the Lord Jesus. And so here in John 1.1, when he says, in the beginning was the word, he's using the word in association with the person of Christ, and that's on purpose, that Jesus is God's powerful speech action, that Jesus is the clearest articulation of God that man will ever know. And if you have a question about whether or not he's referring to a specific person, note that in verse two it says, he was in the beginning with God, right? It's not just talking about a theory or an idea or sort of a technological, you know, like, concept. When he talks about the word being with God and being God, he's talking about a specific person. He's talking about Jesus. I also like the fact that right here at the beginning, like I said, he kind of begins with some fireworks. He starts with some very big, meaningful, powerful, sort of theological ideas that he doesn't want us to miss. I think these come out of questions and objections he's heard in the midst of his ministry. So he begins by saying, In the beginning was the Word. What's the first thing he's telling us? Is that Jesus, the Lord Jesus, was eternally present. He's talking about the eternal presence of Christ. That Jesus wasn't just born and you know, sort of laid in a manger and then over time he sort of took on this teaching ministry and he healed a couple people and that you know, Jesus sort of became uh, who he was over time. Now the, no, John is making the statement from the very get-go that in the beginning, the same beginning we read about in Genesis 1, Jesus was already there. And that's a big deal. I want you to just soak that up for a second that Jesus isn't created, that he doesn't come on the scene at some point, right? He's not introduced into the story of mankind. He's not a plan B or something that God adds later. No, Jesus was there already in the beginning, eternally present, this Jesus, and that's significant. His eternal presence is significant. It's funny, even if you look at the Gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter one, verse one, this is the way Mark begins his Gospel. Mark 1, 1, he says, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah, he starts in Isaiah, right? Saying, this is the beginning of the Gospel. Now, some 30 years later, 40 years later, John, writing his Gospel, goes, well, actually, if we're gonna talk about the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus, we gotta go a lot further back than just the prophet Isaiah, We gotta go back to the beginning of all things. You wanna talk about the story of Jesus, it starts way back, and in fact, we understand that Jesus doesn't have a beginning, that Jesus is infinite, he has no beginning and no end, as the rest of the Godhead, right? In the beginning was the Word, eternally present, Not only does he talk about the eternal presence of God, by the way, the eternal presence of God gives us a sense of his capability of being present. There's not anybody in the room who was there. I mean, I know there are some of us who are a little bit older, but nobody was there with God in the beginning, right? No? Not only were none of us there with God in the beginning, but none of us are capable of being there with God. Think about the capability that's implied. Right? Think about what it means that Jesus was there with God in the beginning. It says something about who he is, about his character and nature, and that's different than us. You start to see the gap between creation and creator sort of open up. It says something about his presence. It says something about his capability. It tells us that he was not created. It also implies relationship. It implies communication understanding and agreement. We see that in the beginning, Jesus was already there, eternally present. Not only though, in these first verses, do we see the eternal presence of the word of God, but we also see the equal position of the word of God, the equal position. Here's what he says in verse one. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Well, that's a whole other thing. I mean, it's one thing to say he was there in the beginning, It's another thing entirely to say he wasn't just with God, he wasn't just in relationship with God, but he was God. Now this is John speaking directly to the objections of people during the day and age that would have said, hey, you know what, listen, I like Jesus as a good guy, right? He's a good rabbi, he's a good teacher, he gave some great speeches, he seemed to really care about the common man, and he died way before his time. But I don't know that I can buy this thing of Jesus being a deity. I don't know that I can buy the idea that Jesus was both man and God. John has heard those objections just like we have heard those objections, right? There are some of you who attend this church week in and week out, and you go, man, I really love the teachings of Jesus, and I think he was a good guy, and he gave some great speeches, and I'm gonna try and live my life by the way he lived, but I don't believe that he's God. John here is saying, unequivocally, let's be clear who we're talking about. We're not just talking about a great man. We're talking about God in the flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and this is coming from an eyewitness, right? An eyewitness, someone who walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus, someone who lived with him, who, you know, shared falafel with him or whatever. This is a guy who was on the trail. In 1 John chapter one, John says this about his own set of eyes. 1 John 1:1 1, 1 says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John's saying, I was with him, I touched him, I heard him, I walked with him, and I can tell you, he wasn't just a good man. He wasn't just an incredible rabbi. He didn't just give great speeches. This person that I lived with and followed was with God and was God. Not just his eternal presence, but his equal position. Jesus himself claimed that, by the way. We'll get to it in John 10. It's one of my favorite passages. It's one of the places where we get to see a little bit of Jesus' sense of humor. If you don't think Jesus has a sense of humor, you're wrong. Not only does he have a sense of humor, I'll go one step further and say there were moments where Jesus was kind of sarcastic, and I totally dig that, right? It makes me feel better about myself. Uh, In John 10, Jesus is teaching in John 10. You look at verse 27. Jesus says this. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. And he drops the mic, right? Walks off stage. Here's what happens next. Look at verse 31 the Jews who were listening picked up stones. They pick up rocks, again, to stone him, right? They're gonna kill Jesus for saying, I and the Father are one, and here's where Jesus gets funny. In verse 32, Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? Just so we're clear, before you hit me in the face with a bunch of rocks, I just wanna know, was it when I fed the people, or when I healed the person who couldn't walk, when I made the blind guy see? I just wanna know which one I'm getting killed for, right? And you can totally picture this scene because then the, the, the people who are holding rocks ready to kill Jesus, they get agitated, you know, and they go, it says in verse 33, the Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we're gonna stone you, dummy. That's, uh, that's my translation, I just added that in, I'm working on it. It's not because you did good things that we're gonna stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. The people in the first century to whom Jesus declared, I and the Father are one, had no misunderstanding about what he meant. They were gonna kill him for it. It was very clear to them that he had said, in no uncertain terms, I'm not just with God, I am God. Jesus claimed it, and yet there's this misunderstanding that happens often, right? Jesus is eternally present. The word of God, eternally present. Jesus is not only eternally present, he's of equal position with God. They are the same in Trinity. Right? And then thirdly, back to John chapter one, verse one, we see that, he, that he's evidentially powerful. We see the evidential power of God's word. It says this, he was in the beginning with God, this is verse two, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus was present in the beginning, eternally existent, right, eternally present. He was with God and was God, equal in position, and evidential in power. He created all things, everything we know. Look around, look around the room. Everything you see and everything you know, everything you've ever experienced, every breath you breathe is as a result, according to John 1, 2, and 3, of the creation of Christ. It backs up what we read in Colossians chapter one. In Colossians chapter one, verse 16, it says, for by him, that's Jesus, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. We're not just talking about the, the presence of Christ at the beginning. We're not just talking about the position of Christ in the Trinity. We're talking about the power of Christ to create all things, the power of the word of God. In fact, it's, it's cool because even in, um, in Psalm 33, it says this, Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. John isn't just saying sort of cutely, hey, Jesus is the word of God. He's saying when we as a people think about the word of God having power, we're thinking about Christ having power. The power to create and I love the creativity of God, don't you? I mean, if you're a creative in the room, if you're a poet or a painter or a photographer, or, you know, if you're a, uh, if you're a writer, uh, all of us who are creatives, we, we love to create, but we're always creating from existing things, right? You take stuff that already exists, colors that exist, tools that exist, language that exists, canvas that exists, and when we create, we're creating by, by organizing existing things in new forms. Does that make, that's what all creativity is in, in human terms, Right? Not so with Christ. When Christ creates, he doesn't take existing things and organize them in new forms. When Christ creates, he creates ex nihilo. That means out of nothing. He creates where there was nothing, he creates something. We talk about the power of God and the creativity of God. All of our creativity is just a shadow of the creativity of our maker. It's fun. It's fun to be creative in his image. But here John in the opening three verses of his of his gospel he declares the eternal presence of Christ the equal position of Christ and the evidential power of Christ it demonstrates creativity and ownership it demonstrates interest and power and it also tells us that God and his message can't be separated that God and his articulation in Christ, they can't be, you can't go, oh, I love God, I just don't love the things that he said. Or I love Jesus, I just don't really care about God. No, they're the same. Eternally present, equal in position, and evidential in power. But here's the bigger question I have for you in the time we have left this morning, it's this. Uh, There's another thing that, there's a thing that happens between verse two and verse three that I have a question about, and I wonder if you have the same question. My question between verses two and three. I get that Jesus was there, that he was equal with God, and that he created all things. My question would be, if Jesus is one with the Trinity in all eternity past, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit in perfect harmony and love. We see in, um, in 1 John chapter four, verse eight, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. You've probably heard that before. God is love, Well listen, God can't, it's possible for someone to love someone, to do love, but it's not possible for someone to be love unless they are by their very nature in community, right? The Trinity is essential to our doctrine because in order for God to be love, it has to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There has to be mutual, right? There has to be something shared. There has to be relationship. So we understand that God is love and that he's outside of time. The Trinity has always existed in perfect harmony. In perfect peace, in perfect affection, in perfect love, they are absolutely content and satisfied in themselves as God. Right? Sometimes people will say, "Oh, God created the earth because He was lonely. Oh, yeah, He was so sad, so He created people." So he'd it's just like the reason we get hamsters. You know, He put us on the planet to see if we dig tunnels and fight, and you know what? We do. We do. We do just the, We do the exact same thing hamsters do: dig tunnels and fight. That's pretty much our day, right? God didn't create the earth because he was lonely. He was completely satisfied in himself. To suggest that God created the earth because he was lacking something is to say something false about who God is. He's utterly sufficient in and of himself. He doesn't create because he needs something. He's perfect in harmony and love and peace in the Trinity. So my question this morning is this, between verses two and three, my question is why? Why bother? I look around the world and I see so much that is gross. So much drama. So much fighting and digging tunnels, right? I see so many people at each other's throats. I see so much bigotry and racism and greed and arrogance and hatred and fighting and murder. And I think if the Trinity was existent through all of time and space and was content and satisfied in love by itself, Why does the infinite, eternal, powerful, present word create in verse three? I don't get it. Why not just leave well enough alone? My wife and I were married for five years before we had kids. And I think about those five years a lot. (laughs) Right? I think about those five years a lot. We could go anywhere, right? You could go. You didn't have to pack a bunch of stuff in the car. We didn't have to argue with anybody about anything i have to convince somebody that I know what I'm talking about. There are all kinds of times when I think, why didn't I just leave well enough alone? Those first five years were glorious. <laughs> so why? why? Why does God create in verse three? Why does Jesus create? Why, why start this thing in motion that's gonna be so, so much chaos and trouble? Why cause this? Well, the answer is that love Love, think about Trinitarian love. Picture Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect harmony. Love never leaves us where we are. It never leaves us alone. Love is always a catalyst for movement. Love is always a catalyst for mission. Love is always a catalyst for action. It's an active thing. And so here we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect harmony and peace and love. They didn't need the earth. They didn't need our drama. They didn't need our tunnels and our fighting. And yet they create, why? to invite us into what they were experiencing, to invite us into perfect love, to invite us into perfect peace, to invite us into perfect harmony, to give us a taste of what they have known through time immemorial. In John 17, Jesus says this really cool. John 17, verses one through five. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. I had glory with you before the world existed and now the time has come for me to die on a cross and let these humans rip out my beard and nail me to a tree. But God, in the midst of that pain and that trouble, will you return to me the glory I had before all this nonsense began, right? Before all these people were cursing at me, before all the fighting, before all of the the trouble, return to me the glory. Later on in John 17, look at what he says. Look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me when I am, may uh, be with me where I am, to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus is thinking to John 1. He's not thinking to that literal book, but he's thinking to that time that before the earth was formed, we loved each other. And I'm returning to that place. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. What's Jesus saying? We had this plan before time began, before the earth was set in space. We had this plan to leave that existence that we had, to not consider Godhood something to be clung to, but to empty ourselves. And I came to the earth on a mission. And what's the mission? That people would know you, that they would love you, that they would glorify you with the glory we had before the foundation of the earth. There is a purpose between verse two and three. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, eternally present, equal in position, and that evidential power is brought to bear because the love of God is always disruptive. Love is always stirring up trouble. It doesn't leave us alone, and it didn't leave the Trinity alone. They entered into this creation. Why? Not because they needed us, but that we would get an opportunity for the love of Christ to be known to us and for us to love him in return. For his love to be in us and our love to be like his. Ephesians 1, chapter 3, or excuse me, chapter 1, verse 3 says something similar. Look at this, Ephesians 1, 3 says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Uh, and then you'll notice in the ESV, it puts a, a verse, puts a verse marker after the words in love. That's where the number five goes. Cross that number five out. There's no reason to, to break that phrase up, Okay. What it should say is, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. What's it saying in Ephesians 1? It's saying that God had a plan. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect harmony and peace, the Trinity said, we don't just want to exist like this. Let's invite someone else in. But what that's going to mean In order for this redemptive plan to play out, it's going to mean that we have to give people the ability to spit in our face, that we're going to have to give people the ability to reject us and to turn their backs on us and to use us as a curse. We're going to have to give people the ability to choose not to follow us if they're going to be able to follow us and experience this love. What's the purpose? Why does God create That in loving us and allowing us to experience something of Trinitarian love, we would glorify the Father with the glory He had before we were ever created. It's exactly what our mission statement says. Here's what's interesting our mission statement, you know, empowered by the Holy Spirit, uh, Evie Free Fullerton is a loving community united in sacrifice, living like Christ for the glory of God. Guess what? That's the same mission statement that God has motivated by love and sacrifice empowered by the spirit what is god doing he's glorifying himself so here in the first 3 verses of the book of john we have him setting up a grand picture of who this jesus is not just a teacher not just a rabbi not just a good man who gave some speeches but god very god who comes to earth not because he had to but he created all things through him was not anything made or was not was everything made that was made Why? Because he already had this perfect thing and he wanted us to be able to experience it as well. Love always stirs up trouble. The title of our series, we're gonna see it again and again through the book of John, is that love is beautifully disruptive to our lives. And you know what? Love was beautifully disrupted to the Trinity at creation. It stirred up trouble in that he created the earth and he set it spinning and he allows us to walk away from him He washes the feet of those who will abandon him. He dies on the cross for those who couldn't care less. But his love is a catalyst for trouble. Let me ask you this this morning. I think for many people, when we think about our faith, when we think about Christianity, we sort of think about it in terms of trying to to get to a place of presence and position and power, right? that God is present in my life and I positionally before him an an adopted son or a daughter and I've got the power of the Holy Spirit working on my behalf and I just want to sort of settle in, hunker down with my presence and my power, right, and my position. But the love of God doesn't leave us alone. The love of God doesn't stir in us a sense of static or a sense of plateau. The love of God is always gonna stir up trouble for us as well. It calls the disciples to leave their nets, to leave their families. It disrupts kingdoms. It disrupts power structures. It disrupts religious authorities. It turns lives on their heads. And so if you've been thinking of your faith in terms of trying to just sort of settle down into your position and your power and and the presence of God, let me tell you what, you're always going to be disappointed because the love of God, if you understand it, will always be pushing you out of that comfortable place. An integrator sacrifice. We can see that right in 1 John chapter four. I'm long, but I want you to see this. 1 John chapter four, when it talks about God being love. It says in verse nine, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. As a family, as a church, we don't want to be people who just settle down comfortable in our power and position and presence. We want to be people who are always pushed out of that into love and sacrifice. We want to be a people for whom the love of God is always stirring up a little bit of beautiful trouble in our midst. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would move in us to be anxious and eager for the beautiful disruption that your affection creates. That we wouldn't just become comfortable, that we wouldn't just become satisfied and settled, but that we would constantly be asking the question, how does our knowledge of the love of God stir us to action? We thank you that you, God, in, in eternity were stirred to action, that you created life in order to give us a taste of something you already knew your love, and your glory. We praise you for that. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.